Hello and good morning, beautiful people of Mother Earth. I read this earlier and it could be entirely false because of the internet, but apparently the sun will be setting at 7 o'clock within 45 days. And I know I'm not the only person that needed to hear that. I don't have much to complain about winter-wise, but boy oh boy, I cannot wait for those longer and warmer days. I believe I have found a bit of a hack for finding new stories lately. Google searches always produce the same results again and again, and it's frustrating to filter through the same cases. Instead, when I find a well-written, highly researched article by a thoughtful writer, I simply use their name as a jumping off point. These people have been involved in journalism for years by the looks of it. Why not use their curiosity and experience rather than just mine and the internet's? This week I scrolled through the work of Smithsonian writer Karen Abbott, a contributing writer for history and the author of the books Sin in the Second City and American Rose. This woman has endless pieces to read, from the downfalls of cults to odd happenings at the Olympics. Today's piece, however, is a story about a man often referred to as the Bronx Rasputin. Today I bring you the man who refused to die. My name is Eli, and this is Murder in the Morning. According to the Washington Post, Shane Paris Sissoko was three months old when he was murdered in Montgomery County in 2001. Lemuel Wallace, 37, blind and, developmentally, blind and developmentally disabled, was shot to death in 2009 in a Baltimore park. Latiqua Cherry, a mother, was stabbed nine times before her body was set on fire in May of 2015. A young boy by the name of Prince was 15 months old when he was drowned or suffocated in Virginia of October 2012. Common to all of these deaths is that the killer had secretly insured the victims' lives and made themselves sole beneficiaries. The apparent ease in which the killers were able to obtain policies shows that sufficient safeguards are not in place. Particularly worrisome, actually horrifying, are the instances in which, with little or no scrutiny, hundreds of thousands of dollars of insurance is obtained on the lives of young, and very vulnerable children. Each state establishes regulations for the insurance industry and insurers establish underwriting guidelines for the sale, review, and approval of their policies. But much of the business is now conducted online, making it easier for someone with bad intent. That certainly seemed to be the case in the death of Latiqua Cherry. Two months before her murder, her ex-boyfriend Maurice Wigfall went shopping on the web for a policy that didn't require a medical exam. After submitting what prosecutors believed was her forged signature, he purchased a $50,000 policy, killed her, was caught, and was sentenced to life in prison. These, these happen to be much more recent incidents that involve children and much more vulnerable people, but the issue of insurance fraud has been around as long as insurance has. A hundred or so years ago, however, nobody was safe from these scammers slash murderers. 
The 1930s were a difficult time for everyone in the United States due to something called the Great Depression, and this was no different for Bronx residents of New York. One afternoon in July of 1932, three men concocted a devious plan. Francis Pasqua, Daniel Kreisberg, and Tony Marino sat in Marino Speakeasy glaring down one man, Michael Malloy. Malloy was a lifetime drinker. The term alcoholic would be an understatement. The three men talked amongst themselves. Who would miss this man? He has nobody. His entire life is in the bottle. For a long time, Tony Marino had let Malloy drink on credit, paying his tab for the man. But lately, with business dwindling and the Great Depression affecting everyone, he no longer allowed this. According to the Smithsonian article, Pasqua, who was 24, was an undertaker by trade. He eyed Malloy's sloping figure, the glass of whiskey hoisted to his mouth. No one knew much about him, not even, it seemed, Michael Malloy himself. All they knew was that he had come from Ireland. He had no friends, no family, no definitive date of birth. Most people guessed him to be about 60. No apparent trade or job beyond the occasional sweeping of an alley or collecting garbage and he was happy to be paid in alcohol instead of money. Why don't you just take out insurance on Malloy, Pasqua asked Tony Marino that day, and I can take care of the rest. Marino paused. Pasqua knew he'd pulled off such a scheme once before. The prior year, Marino, who was 27, had befriended a homeless woman named Maybelle Carson and convinced her to take out a $2,000 life insurance policy, naming him as the beneficiary. One frigid night, he force-fed her alcohol, stripped her of her clothing, doused the sheets and mattress with ice water, and pushed the bed beneath an open window. The medical examiner listed her cause of death as bronchial pneumonia, and Tony Marino collected the money without incident. Without much further consideration, Tony Marino nodded, and the three set about this insurance scam. Pasqua, through his dubious connections, secured three separate life insurance policies on Malloy within five months. During this period, they recruited one more member to the Murder Trust, as they were later dubbed, Joseph Murphy, the bartender at Marino's. He would serve as the next of kin and the sole beneficiary to claim the insurance payout. I think this move was honestly to place Joseph in the position of scapegoat in case anything went awry. The total payout of these three insurance policies equaled $3,576, or only $80,000 today. Not much to split between four men, if you ask me. After everything was set in place, the men gathered on a crisp evening in December of that year to commence the killing of Michael Malloy. According to Karen's article, to Malloy's delight, Tony Marino granted him an open-ended tab saying that competition from other bars had forced him to ease his rules. No sooner did Malloy down a shot than Marino refilled his glass. Malloy had been a hard drinker all of his life, one witness said, and he just drank on and on. He drank until Tony Marino's arm tired from holding the bottle. Remarkably, his breathing remained steady, his skin retained its normally ruddy tinge, and finally he dragged a grungy sleeve across his mouth thanked the bartender, and said he'd be back soon. Within 24 hours, he was. 
Malloy followed this pattern for three days, pausing only long enough to eat a complimentary sardine sandwich. Marino and his accomplices were at a loss. Maybe, they hoped, Malloy would choke on his own vomit or fall and slam his head. But on the fourth day, Malloy stumbled into the bar and exclaimed, Boy, ain't I got a thirst. Quote, Tony grew impatient, suggesting someone simply shoot Malloy in the head. But Murphy recommended a more subtle solution, exchanging Malloy's whiskey and gin with shots of wood alcohol. Drinks containing just 4% wood alcohol could cause blindness, and by 1929, more than 50,000 people nationwide had died from the effects of this impure alcohol. They would serve Malloy not shots tainted with wood alcohol, but wood alcohol straight up. Marino thought it was a brilliant plan. Murphy bought a few 10-cent cans of wood alcohol at a nearby paint shop, carried them back in a brown paper bag. He then served Malloy shots of cheap whiskey to get him feeling good and made the switch. The men watched as Michael Malloy continued to down shot after shot of this so-called man-killer. He finished everything to give into... He finished everything given to him and still came back for more. In sheer awe, they watched as night after night, Malloy came in drinking wood alcohol as fast as Murphy could pour it, until one night, he abruptly crumpled to the floor. The accomplices held their breath, waiting for a movement or lack thereof. Three or four long minutes passed, and then Malloy let out a jagged breath and began to snore. Some hours later, he awoke, rubbed his eyes, and asked Murphy for the usual. The murder trust called an emergency meeting, frustrated that this man seemingly couldn't drink himself to death, no matter the liquid. Plus, this plan was becoming quite expensive. The monthly insurance premiums were adding up, not to mention the open tab Malloy had been viciously abusing. Pasqua offered a solution. Michael Malloy enjoyed seafood, so why not poison his food as well? They soaked his oysters in denatured alcohol, which is poisonous to humans, before serving them to him. And on top of this, they added shrapnel and rotten fish to the mix. Malloy ate everything given to him without hesitation and proceeded to ask for more. The four conspirators stood with jaws open on their blank faces, unsure how this man was simply standing. Karen Abbott wrote, the gang called another emergency conference. They didn't know what to make of this Rasputin of the Bronx. Rasputin, if you don't know, according to the New World Encyclopedia, is a con or was a controversial Russian mystic slash spiritual leader who was very influential in the Russian government, I guess you could say. Contemporary opinion saw Rasputin variously as a holy man, a visionary, healer, and a prophet, but on the other side of the coin, as a debaucherous religious charlatan or a madman, or the, quote, mad monk, as they called him. Oh, and he survived multiple brutal assassination attempts, hence the reference to our story. Marino, called his Marino recalled his success with Mabel Carlson and suggested that they ice Malloy down and leave him outside overnight. So that's what they did. That night, after Malloy passed out from drinking, they lugged the unconscious man through heaps of snow and into Cratana Park. After depositing him on a park bench, they stripped him of his shirt and dumped bottles of water on his chest and his head. 
Malloy never stirred. When Marino arrived at a speakeasy the following day, he found Michael Malloy's half-frozen body in the basement. Somehow, he had trekked the half-mile back, persuaded Joseph Murphy to let him back in, and when he came to, he complained of a wee chill. February neared. Another insurance payment was due. They decided to reach out for additional help, which is always a mistake. A good friend named John Maglioni offered the services of another person, a cab driver friend named Harry Green, whose cut from this insurance payout would be 150 bucks. The gang was growing, and not by choice. They all piled into Green's cab, a drunken Malloy strewn across their feet. Green drove up a few blocks and stopped. Murphy dragged Malloy down the road, holding him up crucifixion style. Green gunned the engine, everyone braced, and then, from the corner of his eye, Maglioni saw a quick flash of light. Stop! he yelled. The cab lurched to a halt, but Green determined that it had just been a woman turning on the light in her nearby room, and he prepared for another go. Malloy managed to leap out of the way, not once, but twice. And on the third attempt, Harry Green raced towards Michael Malloy at 50 miles per hour. With every second, Michael loomed larger and larger through the windshield. And then, two thuds one loud and one soft, the body against the hood, and then the dropping of the body to the ground. For good measure, Green backed up over him, and the gang was confident that Michael Malloy was finally dead. But before they could confirm, a passing, a passing car had scared them from the scene. I doubt any of the men got much sleep that night, but in the morning, the responsibility fell to Joseph Murphy, as he was named the beneficiary. Murphy called around to local hospitals, police stations, and morgues, searching for his fake, missing brother. Nothing. No injured man. No news of a fatal crash. Nada. Pissed off. Quote, five days later, as Pasqua plotted to kill another anonymous drunk, any drunk, and pass him off as Malloy, the door to Marino's speakeasy swung open and in limped a battered, bandaged Michael Malloy looking only slightly worse than usual. His greeting? I sure am dying for a drink. He told the men of a wild story through scattered memories from the days previous. He recalled the taste of whiskey, the cold slap of night air, and the glare of rushing lights. Then, blackness. Next thing he knew, he woke up in a warm bed at Fordham Hospital and only wanted to get back to the bar, to his friends that were trying to kill him. On February 21st, 1933, quote, seven months after the murder trust first convened, Michael Malloy finally died in his residence near 168th Street, less than a mile from Marino Speakeasy. A rubber tube ran from a gas light fixture to his mouth, and a towel was wrapped tightly around his face. Dr. Frank M., a friend of Pasqua's, filed a phony death certificate citing lobar pneumonia as the cause of death. The gang received only $800 from the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, and Murphy and Marino each spent their share on a new suit. Pasqua arrived at the Prudential office confident he would collect the money from the other two policies, but the agent surprised him with a question. When can I see the body? Pasqua replied that he was already buried. He couldn't see the body. So, an investigation ensued. Everyone began talking, and eventually everyone faced charges. Frank Pasqua, 
Tony Marino, Daniel Kreisberg, and Joseph Murphy were tried and convicted of first-degree murder. Perhaps, one reporter mused, the grinning ghost of Mike Malloy was present in the Bronx County Courthouse. The charter members of the murder trust were sent to the electric chair, which killed them all on their very first try. End quote. How ironic. Apparently, the men decided that enough was enough and killed him any way they could by just pumping gas into his lungs. All for a couple of suits, too. Worth it? That's for you to decide. And that, my friends, is the crazy story of the man who couldn't be killed, Michael Malloy. A bit different today, in a good way, I think. Uh, I hope y'all enjoyed it, and as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for the support you continue to show. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Love you. Hello, hello, everybody. I'm a touch salty that I didn't find this before writing the main story, because holy guacamole is it crazy. Titled, A Decades-Old Killing and Two Murder Trials Divided Juries and a Family. Written by Tim Stello of NBC News. Quote, On the night of September 21st, 2001, Sherry Malarick's home was bustling with activity. The Navy Air Traffic Controller was hosting a family sleepover with pizza, video games, and a large group of kids that included her own. Her blended family had five and her sisters. At one point, Malarick, 34, stepped outside and she never returned. The next morning, her body was found inside the family's Dodge minivan in a parking lot just outside Pensacola, Florida. She had been shot twice with a 25 caliber gun. Nearly two decades passed before there was any arrest in her killing. In two first-degree murder trials that followed, prosecutors failed to convict the suspect, her husband. The first trial against Greg Malarick, now 61, ended in a hung jury, and when he stood trial again last year, he was acquitted. The proceedings exposed a lingering fracture between relatives, one that has left them divided not only over who's responsible for Sherry's killing, but over their family's shared memories. I don't even know how to describe, to be honest, the way it feels to go through all of that and then see nothing come out on the other end, other than a broken-up, torn-apart family, said Tara Malarick, Greg and Sherry's youngest daughter. Tara, 26, has publicly supported her father, who has always denied killing Sherry. She testified for the defense during his second trial and after his October 13th acquittal, posted words of support on Facebook. Quote, thank God justice prevailed and my dad is innocent. Tara's older brother, Jacob, 33 now, testified for the prosecution in both trials and believes wholeheartedly Greg killed his mother. He told Dateline that while he and Tara are very close, their connection is broken for now. Jacob said, I texted her on her birthday just to let her know, like, I'm not done with you. I haven't written you off. I'm just not ready yet. Their cousin, Lisa Leak, described the familial rift in even bleaker terms. Asked if she had anything to say of Tara, Leak said, I have no words. Greg himself declined an interview request from Dateline. Tara said he's trying to rebuild his life after spending more than three years under house arrest. Jacob, Sherry's son from a previous relationship, 
recalled his mother as someone who loved music, dancing, and being a parent. She was also highly organized and well-suited for the high-stress environments of an air traffic control tower or a house full of children. Sherry met Greg in Bermuda in the early 1990s while they were both in the Navy. Jacob's early memories of Greg are good. He recalled his mother's new partner picking him up early from daycare for fishing trips or motorcycle rides. While Sherry was in Greece for a year-long assignment, Jacob said, a Navy employee who sometimes babysat for Greg began spending more and more time at their home, even when there was no babysitting to do. Once, Jacob said, he found their father canoodling on the living room floor with this woman. Two decades later, this affair with Jennifer Spone became a key part of the prosecution's case against Greg. But at the time, Jacob was too scared to confront Greg, he said, nor did he tell his mother about what he had seen, a decision partly motivated by the fact that when Sherry returned, Spone had disappeared from their home. That changed on September 21, 2001, the last day Sherry was seen alive. She was busy managing what Jacob described as the controlled chaos of the cousin's first sleepover. At one point, one of the kids sat down to eat, and his mother stepped outside to talk to Greg, who was in the backyard working on the family's minivan. That was the last time I ever saw her, Jacob said. The sequence of events that followed also became central to the prosecution's case. At some point, Jacob told investigators, Greg returned to the back door and the children asked where their mother was. Greg told them she had gone to the store, walked to the bathroom, and then turned on the shower. Shortly after, Jacob said Spone, the woman who Greg was having an affair with, stopped by to return a lawnmower at around roughly 9 p.m. At 8 the next morning, Sherry was found dead in the parking lot of a Winn-Dixie. After the discovery, Spone told authorities that her visit to the family's home that night was a coincidence. She felt Greg had needed the, lawn the lawnmower back. Authorities were suspicious of her account, but in subsequent interviews over nearly two decades, she always gave the same account and said she knew nothing about Sherry's murder. Then, on March 7, 2020, nearly 19 years after the killing, Greg was arrested. The evidence against him relied largely on the memories of the children who, in some cases, recalled the events of sleepovers to authorities. There was no smoking gun that was going to point to one person or another. It's all in the circumstances. After Greg's arrest, investigators, investigators returned to Spone and offered a deal. If she told the truth about what happened on the night of September 21st, she would get full immunity from prosecution. And Spone agreed. She recalled the account to Dateline in her first media interview. Greg had gone through a divorce before and believed it would be easier just to kill her. It's nonsense, she told him. You don't just kill your wife, and it's not going to be easier. Spone said she didn't believe he would go through with it, even though he allegedly provided instructions on the night of September 21st to meet him at the Winn-Dixie parking lot where he parked the family's van. Spone said she drove him home, then waited a while before knocking, per Greg's request, and said she had the lawnmower. The real reason she was there, she told Dateline, was to help establish Greg's alibi. Spone said she'd never asked Greg about why she picked him up or what he had done, but she recalled thinking, how in the world did I get into this? Spone said Greg gave her clothes and a bag, including one with what she said contained a gun, and was told to get rid of them. She said she later tossed them into a nearby river. I know what I did, Spone said. I know it was wrong. I made bad decisions. But once you make that, 
But once you make that bad decision, there's no going back, and I'm sorry for what I did. After Sherry's death, Spone often stayed at the family's home and briefly moved in in 2009. She dated Greg until she left Florida in 2014. Tara was three when her mother was shot. She has few memories of Sherry, and she isn't sure if they're all real. But she always described her mother as a supermom. Tara said she was 15 when she learned that her father may have been responsible for her mother's death. Tara became angry when she learned of her, of her father's affair, but she'd always known him to be supportive and protective. When she confronted Greg about this allegation, he denied it and told her he didn't understand why people would think this. He gave me a hug and told me everything was going to be okay. To Tara, Spone seemed like a likelier suspect in her mother's killing. But Jacob, on the other hand, had become convinced that Greg killed Sherry. Based on Spone quickly coming back into the picture after his mother's death and a series of events on the night of the killing that he said just didn't add up. Like why did his highly organized mother go to the store when she had just been there two days before? Jacob said he shared his suspicions with another brother, but not with Tara. To her, the allegations surrounding her father are shocking and untrue. Despite Tara's differences with Jacob over who they believe is responsible for their mother's death, she said, they largely stayed away from the subject and tried to remain close. When the second trial opened last October, Crawford presented a defense that suggested Spone was a possible killer, someone who wanted that life, and decided to take it. The defense also tried to show that Sherry's family had sought to turn her children against Greg, and Tara testified that she was sometimes uncomfortable around them because... Everything was always centered around mom's death. Jacob said he was taken aback by his sister's testimony, believing it misre misrepresented their past. And her cousin Lisa said Tara's testimony felt like it was being stabbed in the back. Tara said that her testimony was truthful and that she's open to explaining her statements to her family. I tried to be respectful, respectful of everyone's point of view, she said, and it seemed like absolutely nobody is respecting mine. To Jacob, that second trial was far more difficult than the first. He disliked the defense strategy, believing it made him, believing it made it seem as though his family and not Greg was on trial, and he was floored when the jury returned a not guilty verdict, making Greg a free man. Besides a text on her birthday, Jacob has remained out of touch with Tara since. He said, "I've got a lot of anger in my heart right now that I'm trying to deal with." And that's why I put Tara off for a moment, he said. I need to deal with my stuff first. Jacob understands that Tara wants to protect her father when nobody else would. You don't want to lose the only parent you have, he said. But at the same time, I think that speaks volumes that nobody else is in his corner. Tara, meanwhile, just had a baby and hopes to reconnect with the sibling she thinks of as her brother dad. He's been one of my biggest supporters in life, she said. I'm ready whenever he is. And that, my friends, is the sad, confusing, and bizarre story of Sherry Malarick. I had such a fun time with y'all today. Such a joy each time I can do this. Thank you all once again so, 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 so much. Um, side note, uh, my normal recording software pooped the bed, so I'm trying something different, and I hope it sounds okay. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Love you.